things are going to start happening to me now. You've done all the reading. You're a scholar. You're a professor. You've done all the reading. You've done the intellectual heavy lifting. Carlos, he shouldn't die. You wouldn't know a fact if it begged you all night long. Want to like, um, you know, give the wrong impression because I am, I I am very high. Could ran up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. Yeah, care. I'm a libertarian. What I'm getting is, did why? you vote for Joe Jorgensen or Trump? Who? That, Joe Jorgensen. That was the perfect answer. Thank you. <laughs> that was Oh boy, welcome everybody to the Libertarian Podcast Review. This is Tyler Yonke. We've got Garbage Main Andy. But more importantly, we have Stefan Kinsella. He is very well known in the Libertarian sphere and um, to us. So welcome, Stefan. I hope I said your name right. You did. Glad to be here. I like your opening. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is one of my favorites because there's a lot of good little uh, nuggets there, especially the, uh, the, the famous one there with... Uh, with Alex Jones. So uh, do, what do you think? Alex Jones, libertarian or not? Uh, I don't know a lot about it, but I don't see any reason to, to believe that he's libertarian. Did you recently see his um, thing with St- uh, Steven Crowder talking about why libertarians are, are not good? No. And it was, okay. But well, I'm we not surprised. <laughs> we won't go into too much of it. Andy and I did break that one down. Uh, why don't you first give, uh, tell everybody who you are, uh, all your bona fides, and then uh, we'll go on from there. All of my bona fides. All of How them. much time do you have? Wait, wait, well, I'm, I'm going to link to all your stuff, <laughs> your your Substack, uh, your, your website, your Liberty Papers. I, I did just start a Substack at Jeff Tucker's Urging. Um, we'll see if the, how that goes. Uh, uh, I'm Stefan Kinsella. I'm an attorney in Houston, kind of basically a retired attorney at this point. Um, um, and I write, I write and speak on libertarian legal theory from an Austrian anarchist perspective. So that's who I am, and uh, yeah, I'm involved with the Mises Institute and uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's group in Turkey, and uh, yeah, I've been doing this since, for over thirty years. You just came. You just were over in Turkey, is that correct? Yeah, I went to the sixteenth uh, annual meeting in uh, in Bodrum, Turkey, for Hoppe's uh, group. So a few things. One, uh, how was that, and and what did it all entail? And then how was travel over to Turkey? With all the COVID stuff we've got going on, the, the wars in the world, uh, how was travel? Well, so um, it was it was really good. Uh, it was maybe the best one ever from my point of view because I stayed a few extra days because my son is old enough where I don't have to rush back home. So um, we had a lot of extra time to do side trips. Um, we had to cancel the, the conference in um, 2020 because of COVID because no one could get there. <laughs> Um, so we had it last year, like a truncated version. It was a smaller group because it was still difficult to get there. This year, things were back on schedule. So the only problem was that inflation is crazy in Turkey right now. So, um, you know, as an outsider, it doesn't hurt that much because your dollar, you know, your dollar goes a little bit farther, but, uh, I don't know. Things seem roughly the same. Um, every year you go to Turkey, you're worried there's a tense situation because of, the conflict between the U.S. and Turkey, but and the you know the uh, the Islam these Islamists who want to uh, take over there, but 
I don't know. I've been going like 12, 13, 14 years in a row. So um, I've enjoyed it. I like why, it. Why is it. Why is the conference in Turkey? What what makes Turkey the place that uh, some the hotbed for this? Well, it's 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 just a strange strange coincidence. And in two thousand six or five, Hans Hermann Hoppe uh, remarried. He married this woman Gulchen Imre, um, who is a uh, an Austrian economist herself, but she's a Turkish woman, and she has an estate in Istanbul and also in Bodrum. Uh, her her family has a hotel there, and so Hans married her and started the PFS in 2006 and decided to hold, hold it uh, at his wife's hotel. So we basically have it in Turkey because his wife has a hotel there that we can, we can hold the event at. And interestingly, you know, he did it as a counterpart to the Mount Pelerin Society, which is sort of this original classical liberal group started in the 1940s by Hayek and Milton Friedman and these guys. And you know, there's a there's a famous story about Milton Free, uh, I mean, sorry, Mises storming out of one of the meetings, saying, "You guys are a bunch of socialists," because, yeah. you know, by mainstream lights, these were all the classical liberals at the time, but they were all basically on board with, you know, you have to have a social welfare program, you have to have, you know, um, social welfare, you know, all the programs. And Mises just was like, "What the hell, man? <laughs> you guys are on the road to serfdom," as Hayek would later, you know, write about. Um, so anyway, Hoppe wanted to form a more radical version of that, an international law, an international society dedicated towards Austro-libertarian anarchist principles, not just classical liberal. And so because it was going to be inaugurated in, in Bodrum, Turkey, which is not too far from a very famous mountain called Mount Ararat, mm-hmm. right, which is where allegedly you know, Noah's Ark was found and all this kind of stuff. So it's very biblical. So we were going to name it the Mount Ararat Society as a counterpoint to the Mount Pelerin Society, but we decided that sounded too uh, that sounded too Old Testament. <laughs> so, so, what did you or, or Hans Ben Noah in that in that scenario? Uh, huh. <laughs> Interesting question. All right, good. I'm glad we stumped. Let's read the reminder. You, st- you stumped me. You stumped me on that one. <laughs> Everyone knows who Kinsella is, and if they don't, uh, they should probably physically distance themselves immediately from the show. Which takes me to the next. Okay, <laughs> I like it. Which takes me to the next question. Um, there, maybe Andy, you can explain the, the the thing with Rose on the internet to everybody, uh, and which it comes to one of the things we want you to explain. I don't know why you're. Why are you the designated Hans Hermann Hoppe spokesman for Twitter uh, US? I don't really know. Um, uh, probably because Hans doesn't talk to people anymore. And so everyone turns to me because I defend him when he's unfairly criticized and maligned. Um, I am my own guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I run his website and I run the PFS website and I've helped him out over the years. And I, 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 I've been a big proponent of his argumentation ethics and his earlier uh, praxeological and proprietarian work. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, he's really gotten more attention because of his later kind of uh, soci- uh, his cultural work, like d- democracy and immigration and that stuff, which uh, I never wrote a lot about, really. But everyone sort of comes to me and they, they, they tar and feather me with uh, – his ideas on this, which some of them I still defend. I mean, not all of them necessarily, but I mean, 
So I, I don't know. I guess it's because I'm I have the tenacity to stand up and defend the guy because I don't have any um, compunction about doing so. I, I I will defend anyone who I agree with, even if I, even if you know, even if I don't agree with everything they they believe. Andy, well, uh, as far as I know from the Rose thing, so there is the helicopter meme, and some it started as a meme and really just an inside joke, but some people buy into it and think that the nap and libertarianism are divisible and from what i could tell she was really misrepresenting hoppa's work and talking about physical removal as far as like being acceptable in terms of property rights violation like it's okay to violate someone's property rights if you disagree with them or they're a communist or whatever but yeah, from my I, understanding, yeah. my yeah, understanding is when Hoppe has talked about this, he means social ostracization. <laughs> like you can physically distance yourself. You can buy their property from them or, you know, you can, there is some level of cooperation, but he's not talking about actually throwing people out of helicopters. Yeah. Well, he's, yeah, he's actually explicitly clear about that. Uh, Michael Malice actually talked to him when he came to the PFS uh, a few years ago. And, you know, he said, when you say physically remove, do you mean like remove as a verb? Or do you mean like add or remove? And Hans says, oh, I just mean add or remove. Like he just means like, hmm. I, I think all Hans is talking about, see, Hoppe, Hoppe talks in these German um, kind of categorical idealistic ways where he goes to extremes to illustrate a point. And so I think he imagines right away like um, like uh, an the extremes of a situation to, to illustrate something. So he basically is saying that people in society tend to affiliate and segregate voluntarily with each other. This is just, we all know this, right? There are different yeah. segregated areas of society. Like tends to go with like and whatever. doesn't mean there can't be some trade, some intercourse and all this stuff, but people do tend to segregate. And all, I think all Hans was saying was he predicted that if you have a private law society, you would have regions or associations of people, and they would tend to have commonly shared values. And those would, in his view, in most of these groups, would tend to be the kind of uh, heterosexual, Western, private law, private property-based society. Now, he didn't mean by that that everyone had to be heterosexual or whatever. What he meant was that would be like the, the norm. Yeah, but if, yeah, if you have like sense. a neighborhood and you have a priest, the priest is celibate. He's not like ostracized because he's a priest, but he's not out there criticizing the institution of, of, of marriage and children. Like and he's he not actually, the norm as far as like the population. He's not the norm, and that's fine, but the point is he's tolerated because he's – he, he recognizes that that's the predominant mode. Right. Uh, and so I think – so Han says, okay, so you're not – you're going to have people that are, tend to be basically libertarian or private property oriented and conservative in the sense of like you know respect authority, respect your parents, you know, have manners, that kind of stuff. Um, and so people that come into town and they're just spout, spouting all this stuff like opposed to that, communists – you know, r radicals, people that just hate everything about your society, they're Constance going to tend to call them outlaws, right? Well, it, they, they don't have to necessarily commit a crime, but if, even if they don't commit a crime, it, like they're just going to, they're not going to tend to be welcomed by this community. 
So yeah, Hans would never advocate expelling someone physically from their property. Property rights are sacrosanct in his view. Um, now, there are some libertarians I've been arguing with in recent days on Facebook, like David Beto and these guys, and they, they simply keep making things up about Hans, which is – look, if you're going to disagree with someone, that's fine, but just at least accurately state their position. So they keep saying like Hans believes that in today's world we should, we should uh, you know, expel racial minorities, like, which is not his view at all. He never says that at all. He simply says you shouldn't have a government policy that artificially changes the character of the country. But he says that in a private law society, you know, you could have everyone can invite whoever they want onto their property. So he says nothing like that whatsoever. So these people have to distort what he says to try to demonize him. Um, and I guess this is why I'm called on to defend him because I am <laughs> passionate about spending. Well, I mean, see, as a libertarian, right, you have to defend someone's right to discriminate for any reason or whatever reason. You don't have to yes. necessarily agree with it, but right, right. Do you, you, have the do right you see to the right? Do you see the there's uh, there's two sides that, that seem to be taken on Hoppe recently. So there's there's a lot that are taking him on. It's even some of the post libertarian types, and they kind of are. E at least this is my reading, not too much into it, but almost using him as see uh, aggression is uh, the nap isn't necessarily and we can we can remove people. And then the other side is like, uh, we don't like Hoppe because he is saying to, you know, use helicopters. So it almost feels like they're both misrepresenting him. One's trying to use him and one's trying to for the good for their side. And the other side is trying to use him as a negative. Is Am I reading that correctly or, or no? I think there's something to that. Um, I think the post-libertarians fixate on a few things that you know further their cause. But anyone who's a post-libertarian, when I hear that, I think you know ex-libertarian used to be libertarian, want to yeah. be libertarian. So I, you know, they're 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 basically just another type of socialist in my my point of view. Oh. So they they used to flirt with it and they whatever. Uh, now the left libertarian, so you know, like the helicopter meme. Hans never said anything about helicopters. He simply right. said. <laughs> people would not want to associate with people that don't share their values. And then that turned, that got turned into the Pinochet helicopter meme. And it also got turned into the snake meme, um, which, so there's a whole bunch of these alt-right kind of guys that have glommed onto this because the internet is a crazy and wacky and fun place. But Hans just watches it with the amusement from the sidelines. He has, he has no responsibility for it, of course. Do you have a personal favorite Hoppa meme? <laughs> well i like the my ringtone on my phone is uh is, is something uh there's a podcast uh, what's the name of the guy that does a podcast he's kind of an alt-right guy uh J jared someone um oh jared he, the hoppian or yeah hoppy and something but he starts out with um uh hans is quote crush the anti-fascist mob <laughs> i like that but uh no, Hans is a sweet, nice guy. Uh, I, 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 I mean, it's just bizarre to me that you have these Peppy the, Peppy the Frog things and the snake things and the helicopter things. Um, Let, let's go into um, the Phil Magnus stuff, if you don't mind. I, I know you wrote up – I read your – I subscribed to your Substack, by the way. So good stuff there. Thank you. Uh, yes, you're welcome. And, it, I, and I read the whole take. You, you did quite the deep – um, Facebook posts even between the two of you. Uh, so I'm not going to get into all of that, but I thought, and Andy and I had played this recently and you, you've probably seen it, what kind of brought him to my attention. Now I knew about Phil cause he did a lot of the work against this, uh, 1619 project and right. I thought it was really good. 
And then I, I watched this and my first comment to Andy was when you see someone so almost dishonestly um, try to take this apart, it makes you wonder, was I hoodwinked into all his stuff on the 1619 project? Because if, if you're so bad on one item that I can easily check, what about those other ones? What, first of all, what's your feeling on him? And do you want to give an intro to the Phil Bagness uh, debate? Well, I mean, I agree with your general point that, you know, if someone says something that is so obviously uh, unsupportable, you, it does make you trust their other stuff, uh, distrust their other stuff. Um, I'm not deep into a 1619 stuff. I assume that stuff is pretty good because he's been on Tom Wood so many times. And mm -hmm. the times I remember hearing him, he was solid. Um, but he's a, he's got on this hobby horse uh, against Hans. Um and it started with these weird kind of pseudo intellectual comments about Hans um, being overly influenced by the Frankfurt School and Jürgen Habermas, who's a famous uh, European socialist philosopher. And it's, it's like he thinks he's uncovered some kind of deep, dark secret because he did this amazing detective work of finding out that Hans Hermann Hoppe's PhD advisor is Jürgen Habermas, which has been made public for 30 years i mean this is not like something he found out but there's just nothing to it i mean hans i mean to his credit hans studied in europe and he became he was a lefty intellectual he studied under habermas and these guys but he actually grew out of it and became a mazesian rothbardian anarcho-capitalist i mean so it's just bizarre to, to, to try to to pin his um his immigration views on Habermas because it just makes no sense because Habermas is probably has more open borders views because he's a social Democrat type. So it just, it makes no sense. Hans admitted the couple times he drew on Habermas, which is a, a couple cases on number one, his rationalism, which is the stuff that's good, which I don't see how Magnus could disagree with it, but Habermas and this guy Appel, his, his sort of colleague, um, developed discourse ethics, um, and Hans did later on draw on that, but it's not got nothing to do with his immigration views or his, uh, you know, anything untoward. So I, I think the whole initial attempt to attack Hans by Magnus was just incoherent, and there's no way he could back it up in some kind of coherent writing. He just rambled on the internet about it. But then it, then he started ratchet. When that didn't succeed, he started ratcheting up the oh, you're a racist, you're part of the Mises Institute, you're you're an anti-Semite, you're German. Oh, oh, you quoted David Irving in one of your books. Oh, you must be horrible. <laughs> hey, did, did, wait, did, didn't Phil Magnus quote David Irving when he quoted Hans quoting David Irving? <laughs> right. I mean, are we going to play this stupid meta bullshit? I mean, <laughs> fuck you. That sounds like a, an argument I had with my wife last night. So not the fuck you part, but the, <laughs> the, the other part. Um, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play some of this clip here because I think it's 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 in kind of a, an important thing. But I think in your Substack, you were you're I, I try to get to the motive, right? And and you believe it's uh, the anti Mises caucus. Is that kind of your summation of yeah. why they're getting okay? Yeah. Andy, do you have anything before I uh, start doing this? Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, Hopper Moss is uh, what. Hans drew his argumentation ethics from his discourse discourse ethics. If I'm if I'm correct, I believe is that is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And then I think to me, um, 
Magnus is just it just kind of shows his personal in-group preference. I don't think he he's understanding what Hans is saying whatsoever. Okay, could be. All right, uh, let, let me let me play. I know this is a uh, tough to watch on this. Uh, let me know if you um, can't hear it, uh, and we'll play a few minutes and I'll, I'll stop and ask some questions. Stop it. Yeah. Um, Hans Hermann Hoppe yes. is one of your, uh, he's, uh, I was going to say he's one of your white whales. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's certainly into whiteness, but, uh, that is certainly the case. um, Hoppe. Okay. For, I, I'm sorry to, to go <laughs> stop this. Why, why is there a, a, a thing about him being into whiteness? What's the proof or the genesis to that kind of easy off the cuff comment and laugh? Well, I guess there's a couple of things. Um, there was a book that was going to be published by Chase Rachels. And he called it White, Right, and Libertarian. And actually the substance of the book, the parts I've read is not, it's not bad, but like the title is just so seedy. Mm. And he was going to use uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's foreword on that. And, and uh, when, when Hans, uh, Hans decided not to give him permission to use the foreword, he had written a draft of the foreword during an earlier version of the book and uh but chase rachel decided he's going to publish the forward anyway so he published the book with hoppa's forward even though hans withdrew his permission <coughs> excuse me but even that is not, even that's not like white it's not like uh it's just <coughs> i think that book primarily Let's... makes the kind of the standard argument that um you know all these uh, affirmative action policies and the anti um uh, you know uh, anti-discrimination policies they end up uh, demonizing white people which i think is kind of hard to deny doesn't mean you have to be a white nationalist or think the whites are superior when hans has never written that at all he did talk about how um the white race was at the core of western civilization which has gained simply a factual claim i don't know if i i'm not expert enough to know if i agree with all that stuff but it's not a racist claim it's just simply talking about that but he's never ever said anything like uh, minorities have fewer rights they shouldn't be they should be removed or anything like that so that's simply all made up and, and he simply said, is, he, he's simply a white guy himself basically is a problem he's a german yeah, white guy right. so that's the, the problem well me as a german i understand his plight now you did mention he married a white nationalist from turkey right <laughs> <laughs> no he married a he married a a muslim turkish right. woman actually yeah yeah he, he's a big yeah, so, yeah. So there he goes she's obviously self-hating okay we'll we'll continue on there <laughs> oh you know who taught for years at university of nevada las vegas uh, was a protege of or a colleague of murray rothbard exactly. things like that What's your beef with Hoppe, and um, is he somebody who needs to be critiqued more forcefully within Absolutely. the broad libertarian world? Yeah, so he is strange. So Hoppe has strangely uh, come to prominence as like this figure he's seen as the designated heir of Rothbard, mm -hmm. and as who had designated himself as the heir, heir of, of Mises, Mises right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you argue that they fundamentally misread Mises. That is absolutely the case. Okay, what, what's the basis of that? So the clearest is uh, the question of immigration. Mm -hmm. Mises is a good, solid 19th century classical liberal, especially on immigration. Mm -hmm. And he is vehement in his opposition to immigration restrictions. Mm -hmm. Does so on all the classical economic arguments. Mm -hmm. This is a theme that runs through his text from the 1910s to basically when he dies. Mm -hmm. And Hoppe has tried to invent this kind of carved out counter narrative mm -hmm. while still claiming to be a representative of Mises. Okay, so uh, I, this, this broke me uh, when we first uh, watched it. And I'll get back to it because 
the, the comment is he misread him. And then he's talking about having his, uh, is a different in his own way about it. Right. Which I think you've said, Oh, I have some disagreements. So you can have, I imagine disagreements, uh, that doesn't mean I'm misreading him, right? I mean, is, is Hoppe claiming that uh, his way of immigration no. is the way that Mises is? No. However, in, in liberalism, Mises basically does say something like, yeah, ideally you want open borders and free, fl free, free flow of people and, and goods and all this stuff, which is, by the way, the view of all of Hoppe and a center for capitalists in a private society. But he says something like in a mass you know, welfare state or something, you couldn't sustain it. So even Mises in liberalism basically takes a, mm. a, a, a position very similar to what Hoppe says, not that that endorses it or anything. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember there was one incident about 15 years ago, one, another earlier nemesis. See, all these guys are like reincarnations of earlier loathsome people like Tom Palmer and Cato people. Tom Palmer used to have it out for Hans, for Hoppe, and uh, – one time he attacked Hans for saying um, for saying that um, he was a Misesian because he he agreed with Mises that you can't have uh, you can't have involuntary unemployment on a free market or voluntary. Like in other words, if you have unemployment on a free market, it's volu it's voluntary because you could always have a market clearing price or whatever. It's just a standard free market argument. Yeah, and and Palmer was attacking him because Palmer's sort of a Chicago kind of guy. He doesn't quite go all the way, blah blah blah. But he, but the point was Palmer attacked Hans for being for pretending to be a Misesian. And I wrote a, a response to him. I said, "Well, I'm not saying who's right or wrong." I said, "But Mises said A, B, and C, and Hans is simply repeating what Mises said." So. You can't say Hans is not a Misesian when he's actually repeating what Mises said. And Palmer's response was, oh, well, this is how you religious people do. You just quote the text. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> quoting the text. I'm not yeah. quoting to prove that it's right. I'm, I'm saying that you're wrong to say he's not a Misesian. He, he, like, he literally is a Misesian because he, he's, he's elaborating on what Mises actually said. You actually are not a Misesian. I'm sorry. <laughs> how much do you think you need to be um, – like okay, so is is Hoppe really an um, an Amesian, a Misesian? How would you say? Absolutely, <laughs> or, yeah. So so I actually, I actually, I mean, you can have you can have divergence, no, right? And, and, yeah, and, and absolutely. To, to what extent uh, well, is that still okay? So I would, I guess there's there's politics, there's culture and and social social theory and economics. Um, yeah, I think actually Rothbard was correct to say he was the heir of Mises, and I think Hoppe is right to say he's the heir of of those two. And I think Hans basically blends um, sort of Kantianism, a bit of Habermas with the argumentation ethics and Mises and then Rothbard. So I think he inherited Mises' methodology, like his radical a priori stuff in his praxeology. And he got the radical politics from Rothbard because Rothbard was an anarchist and way more radical, excuse me, in political terms than Mises was. So of course, yes, he's he's clearly directly building upon Mises and Rothbard. I would say more, in a sense, more Mises than Rothbard. But then he added his own stuff because, like, yeah. Mises and Rothbard were both, uh, as Hans said in the introduction to his democracy book, Mises and Rothbard both had what he called a soft spot for democracy because you know, you know, if you're Mises, you come to America from. 
from the Cold War and from yeah. totalitarianism, like Ayn Rand did, you're going to think America is a paradise because yeah. we have a constitution and we have some some reverence for individual rights. So you're going to tend to place a lot of emphasis on, oh, these guys are amazing. They got it mostly figured out. But part of that is democracy. So yeah. you're going to start thinking, oh, well, the American Revolution and the French Revolution, but mostly the American Revolution and the move from monarchy to democracy was progress. Not perfect, but it was progress. So Han says, let's let's wait, let's wait a second on this stuff. Maybe Rothbard and Mises were a little bit and, and Rand, all these guys, the earlier classical liberals and libertarians. Maybe you're a little bit too willing to go into with the American scheme of things as being kind of the new model, you know. It's the Francis Fukuyama bullshit, you know, the the end of history and the last man. We finally reached we perfected things. Mm. We perfected a little bit more, but we finally reached the basic final form of history. And Hans is like, no, I think when we went from monarchy to democracy, we went backwards in many ways. And he explains this by economic arguments, like incentives, like, oh, the monarch has a better incentive to act more rationally with the property that the people have to use than Democrat leaders do. And it's, it's basically an un, uh, it's a point you can't argue against. It's, it's so it, – it, you could say that on balance it's better to have democracy, like it's worth paying that price, but you can't deny that it's worse in some respects. So anyway, but my point is he definitely took a lot of things from Mises and Rothbard, but he um, he developed a lot of his own insights, his argumentation ethics, uh, his more radical interpretation of, uh, of praxeology and methodology, um, epistemology, uh, his uh, his uh, his immigration views, his views on democracy. So. Yeah, he's his own guy, but he's built upon those two guys. But he's clearly the the current best representative of Mises and Rothbard, in my view. Do you think that um, since he likely, you know, where they differ, he probably skews a little more to the right than uh, Mises and Rothbard, or at least definitely than Mises? Um, now, now I'm not a, a well-read Hoppian, so it, would that be part of the problem of of the the reason types and Ma Magnus? Um, well, that... he's made he's made no qualms that he's a uh, more culturally conservative. And especially in if you but he has scathing critiques of American conservatives in a lot of ways that I think are misrepresented when people read chapter 10 of Democracy, the God that failed. They think it's an, a, a, an assail on on uh, what he calls modal libertarians, but it's really a critique of the American conservatives and people like Pat Buchanan attempting to fuse or use socialism to create culturally conservative outcomes and Hoppe pretty much dispels that whole myth. So, yeah. And, it, it, it's and so th is that why do you get pushback from here as well? It's similar to the Meacock thing. Um, I don't know. I hear from all sides, but I mean, he, he did criticize uh, Richard Spencer and these guys specifically a couple years ago, because basically they, or economically, you know, illiterate. Left. You know, they, they haven't learned their their lesson is the way he puts yeah. it. Um, and by the way, this, I'm I'm just trying to restate what I think Hoppe's view is. I I don't consider myself to be a cultural conservative ogre, and I don't think Hans is either. I think what Hans does is Hans. He's trying to say that in okay, so he's got a really good article about it's called I think it's called a realistic libertarianism, and 
I, me, me personally, I've always thought that the distinction between left and right was bullshit because I'm a libertarian, right? I think that you know they're both socialists of different flavors. Sure. Um, and also thought that the, the, uh, the, the way that they're defined is incoherent. So, for example, in America, let's say, and the, the left is basically a soft socialist. Now, that's actually somewhat coherent, but it's, it's not that coherent because like, yeah. if you're going to be a socialist, why not be a socialist? But the left is like soft socialism. Maybe as Michael Malice says, socialism going the speed limit or whatever. <laughs> but, but the right in America is like a totally incoherent agglomeration of like three groups. So you have the, the moral majority Christian types. Andy. And then you have the, the, the neocons, you know, the, the, uh, the, the pro-war muscular American neocons. Yeah. And then you have the Chamber of Commerce pro-business free market types. Now, in my view, the third, the third group is the core, the good part of the Republican Party and the yeah. conservatives. But it makes no sense that you would have those three groups allied with each other. I think it's a temporary marriage of convenience, right? And so it's an unshaky alliance, but it's not a coherent doctrine. Conservatism doesn't make any sense. Just conserving – no, it makes, it, it makes sense to a degree to say we have to recognize there's some wisdom in natural authority structures and traditions and all this stuff. So that's what Hoppe gets at in that essay. He basically says the essence of the difference between left and right is the left is essentially egalitarian, right, which is anti-life, anti-man, yeah. unrealistic – but the right is essentially realistic in the sense that we recognize the need for and the naturalness and the goodness of natural authority figures, elites, hierarchies, institutions, and society. And this is what the left and some left libertarians seem to fight against. But from my point of view, it's just simply obvious that like we have a state right now, and the state does all these things that we think is either shouldn't be doing, like the drug war and inflation, or – it should be letting private people do like roads and uh, prisons and the justice system and education and all this stuff, right? Um, and so, if you if you just get rid of the state tomorrow, you push a button and you get rid of it, you have a vacuum. There's obviously a need for roads and there's a need for authority figures. So if you don't have it filled by private institutions and actors. It's going to be filled by the state. That's what's happened. So you have a choice to make in life. Do you want private, natural authority figures and hierarchies and institutions, or do you want statist ones? Like that's the choice, and the left libertarians don't seem to recognize that because they're basically not realistic. They, they refuse to recognize that people are not the same and that everyone shouldn't have the same thing. And the, there's no injustice in some people having a better life than others because they're better, you know, better people or whatever. It's, it's really not that complicated, but they make it complicated because they've been given the blessings of capitalism, even though they don't deserve it, but so they live this rich, spoiled <laughs> life as an academic and they don't have to face the wolves every day. And so they think, Oh, nature's great. It's like you dumbass. <laughs> In, in in nature, you'd be dead. <laughs> yeah. you know? So anyway, that's my rant. But well, I, I like it. Um, I you I don't want to get back to this, but I'm sorry. I'm just going to deviate off it here a little bit. You made me uh, think of a few things. One, um, so I I don't know if you've watched it all. I know you're an attorney and you're retired, so you have plenty of time in your hands now. Have you watched or paid attention at all to the Daryl Brooks trial, the Wakasha Wakasha was in the Wisconsin? Waukesha. Waukesha. No. Thank you. Okay. No. 
So this gentleman, he's a little crazy. Um, he has decided to go down the sovereign citizen route. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know Which, these types. Common law coordinates. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's been rough because uh, one of the things he should be doing is being polite, but he interrupts all the time. So they've actually removed him. So he's trying to take the, so the sovereign citizen, I, I feel like they're, they're, they're close, but they're not quite there. Right. Which is, yeah. okay. I get it. They're, they are literally living in, in Kapistan or in sovereign citizen land in reality, but reality isn't there with them. So none of the things that they want and they push are realistic. Um, First of all, the 14th Amendment, he's pushing on that. What's your take on the 14th Amendment from a, 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 a libertarian point of view? Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But let, let me say on these conspiracy nuts and the yeah. sovereign citizen people, um, I'm with them in spirit. Yeah. The problem is most of them are Protestants who believe in text, right, and they and, and your own vision of things. And, and they, they have this almost magical view of incantations. They think that the world is made of magical spells, and if you find the right spell that you can say in front of a judge, you can make him do your will. But that's just unrealistic. That's not how the yeah. system works. I mean, so they say like, oh, show me the law. Show me the law where, where, where they have to pay income tax. But saying show me the law is just an incoherent rant by someone who's like a Kafkaesque victim of a system. But it's not going to work on the judges that are part of the system, right? Yeah. They don't have a realistic understanding of the exactly. – these guys are not really – my point is these guys that they're talking to, they're not really judges. Yeah. They're fake judges. So yeah. they don't care about justice. Yeah. Their job is to interpret the law as their fellow system interprets it just to keep their place in society. Um, so I feel sorry for these guys, but they have to recognize reality. It's like – you know. I mean, poor Irwin Schiff died in prison, right? I mean, you can say your little theories all you want. And the ultimate problem is that they, they are legal positivists. Like they think that law is what's written down on a piece of paper in black and white because they partly because they've been influenced by the American experiment of having a written constitution. So all the Americans now think that law is what's written down on the law books. Right. The constitution's written down. I swear you, know, you watched it because you, you sound just, it's all the little. Yeah, things I know. The, I know these guys. No, I know Except these guys. For, uh, maybe you, you're a more experienced attorney than I am, but he keeps asking for the lawful law. Was that a lawful law? Have you <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 I and what they're grasping at is they're grasping at legitimacy, right? And their 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 instincts are right. Like the whole system is not legitimate. It's just right. a, but it's but they think it's a. They think it's a real system of justice, and they think the judge's job – they think they're real judges and think their job is to do justice, but it's not. It's just to read read, read the law that they're handed down by the superiors and apply it. That's it. It's, it's, it's not that different than what you have in Russia or in China right now. You know, yeah. Uh, these, these guys are not really justice organ. This is the whole reason we're anarchists. We want to have real systems of justice done privately, organically, not these fake things, right? So – your 14th Amendment question. Um, so on the one hand, I'm a legal realist in the sense of I yeah. recognize that at a certain point, the positive law, the positive law is what is enforced in a given jurisdiction at a given point. Um, you can determine that and recognize that and identify that um, in a sort of empirical or factual process, regardless of legitimacy. So it is the fact that it's illegal to sell cocaine in Texas right now. I don't know. 
Uh, Andy, is that true? Uh, well, doesn't stop him from doing it close to where I'm at here in San Antonio. <laughs> all right. So, well, and, that, and, and and if you get to the point where law and order breaks down, where you can get away with it all the time, then it ceases to become a law. But we have ways of determining what we call the law, which is which is things that and this is where I'm, I agree with Oliver Wendell Holmes, right? Like um, uh, the prediction theory of law. Law is what you predict that the courts will probably do if you get hauled before a court, right? So. It's very legal positivist, but the the thing a lot of natural law types, which is my side, they they hate this type of thinking about it because they basically buy into what I think is legal positivism. In other words, they have this view that God announces what the law is, so they think if there's a source of law. Now, I would consent. I'm an atheist, but I I would agree that if law is going to have a source, it's better to be this benevolent god than than some committee of congressmen right so i, I agree it's an improvement yeah. but still the conception they have is that law is whatever is pronounced by some powerful overlord okay whether it be god or the angels or god's god's god whoever that is or the or the congress right um, so when you think of law as that you you lose the connection to morality so this is why the natural law types, they think it's got to be God because at least God is going to be right. Like like the commands he's going to issue, at least they're going to be guided by uh, benevolence and omnipotence, right, and, uh, um, and omniscience. Um, so at least you know that the commands you have to obey on the penalty of going to hell, at least you know that it's a good guide to living your life the right way. And if you don't live it the right way, you're going to go to hell. But anyway, it's at least not totally as arbitrary as a bunch of congressman right and so i think that what happens is people get they get so used to the idea nowadays in the last 200 years not just in america but in the west as in general with the rise of legal positivism and to democracy and hans Papa, to his credit rightly calls this democratic lawmaking in other words legislation is democratic lawmaking it's it's another way that democracy corrupts the ancient regime and the idea of natural law and the natural order. Um, when you start thinking of law this way, you think of um, you, you, you think of uh, law as just these commands that the government can enforce, right? And so then you start thinking, well, if I could just say the right words, so it's it's, it's almost like you're you're Doctor Strange in a in a Marvel movie. You just you have to say the right spell and you get the judge to do it. But of course, it's not going to work. Or it's like so, the God okay. codes in a in a video game, right? And his his is subject matter jurisdiction. Exactly. His. So yeah, they think there's a code there that you can like tap into. Now, so the Fourteenth Amendment. So in a technical, it depends on the level of analysis. So on a technical level, as a libertarian, decentralist, anarchist, skeptic, I believe the Fourteenth Amendment is is never ratified properly. So I think it's illegal in the first place. Okay, because it was it was ratified. Uh, um, either under coercion or uh, one of the states, one or two of the states withdrew their ratification and the Congress refused to recognize that. So I think the 14th Amendment, in some platonic abstract way of looking at it, is actually illegal. It was never ratified. But as a de facto matter, it's clearly the law, just like the Constitution is the law. I mean, right. you could say the Constitution was, was illegal because it was a coup in a sense. Right. But at a certain point in time, coups become the de facto law, the legal positivist law. So the 14th Amendment is part of the Constitution. 
But so then the question is, what's the right way to interpret it? And I think the 14th Amendment uh, is only a, a, a fairly modest change in the constitutional structure and doesn't do what everyone says it does. Um, I don't think that it incorporates the Bill of Rights against the states. So I don't think, for example, it ever was uh, unconstitutional for a state to have a law censoring free speech or even establishing the state religion. In fact, that was clearly recognized for the first hundred years of the Constitution. Massachusetts had congregationalism, etc. So the question is, did the 14th Amendment change that? So my view is sort of a one that most respectable libertarians like Roger Pallon and Randy Burnett and these guys, Cato types, would, would hate because they want wishes to be so. They, you know, I, I, I agree with Ryan Rand. Wishing doesn't make it so. Even if you want it to be this way, it's just not. Okay. So I don't think that. Um, I think that the I think that the slaughterhouse cases in eighteen eighteen nineties, whenever yeah. the the slaughterhouse cases were, I think they were actually correct. I think that the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Bill of Rights was very limited and restricted, and it was vague. And because it was vague, you have to re construe it narrowly because – not because we're against construing rights grants broadly, but, but because we're against construing a change of the federalist system broadly, like an eroding the federalist limitation on federal power. So I don't think the Privileges and Immunities Clause did very much. So then when the court turned to the due process clause later on to start incorporating the Bill of Rights, it was obviously bullshit, which is, I think, what the court recently finally found in uh, the Roe versus Do the Dobbs. Dobbs case, right? Yeah. Uh, Dobbs case. So um, so I think the 14th Amendment was, is illegitimate, and I think it was narrow, and I think it was – and if I, if I could get rid of it, I would get rid of it. I would get rid of it. <laughs> I can't, well, I'm not going to make would, a. You would throw a bomb in a lot of it. <laughs> I'm not going to make a politically correct joke here, but uh, uh, I, I would get rid of a lot of the amendments. Gotcha. Nineteen <laughs> is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Andy, you, you want me to read some of these questions you had uh, sent me for? Uh, well, Mr. I can I, I can fire away at some. Okay. Of them. I think I think we did a, a fairly decent job on some of the Magna stuff and and Stefan's. I could keep playing some of the, the video, but everyone could go to your Substack actually and, and break it down. I just think he was dishonest in saying if you're the the heir um, and you're mis. I don't think you're misreading it at all. You can deviate a little bit from the other person and not be uh, a white nationalist. Anyway, sorry, Andy, go. I think maybe maybe Elon Musk can um, can do it. Um, a Mises AI avatar and have him come on stage and answer the questions and tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Who he agrees with, Magnus or, or Hoppe? Right. Uh, I was going to ask you, what do Hoppe's what do you, what do uh, Hoppe's critics get right? Wow. Well, I I, I, I I would say that there is legitimate debate on the argumentation ethics defense of individual rights. Okay, that's a that's a that's a that's a promising field for exploration and debate and development and some of the criticisms are well-meaning not have all you, but have some. you taken his argument though further i mean his 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 philosophy on the argumentation ethics haven't you kind of expanded on that yeah so is yours kind of the critique then no i think i've built on it i, I okay. said it's that he a has compliment. a compliment 
Yeah, he had a good insight about how the structure of argumentation works and what, what it means in general. But I tried to put it in more of a legalistic framework, being a lawyer, like thinking about actual the actual context of rights claims. So I think, no, I just I just compliment what he did. Uh, we have a question here. Uh, he and Hoppe argue that the body is inalienable and that voluntary slavery is impossible. If this is so, how much will wannabe slaves have to pay for defrauding slave buyers? Does that make sense? Yes. That sounds a little bit like the type of argument Walter Block tries to make when he defends the ability and the right to uh, engage in voluntary slavery contracts. And that's a very – by the way, this is a very, very, very interesting question, although in a sense it's an irrelevant question because this is like, oh, let the libertarians answer – the question about something that will never happen in, in society. Yeah, right. I don't think then, we're going to actually be on the record have, against slavery or, or something like that. Yeah, I don't think we're actually okay. going to have people signing actual slavery contracts. But if you want to ask us, okay, if we have to answer, what what do we predict would be the response of a libertarian legal system to the enforceability of such an arrangement? Right. That's that's the real question, right? And what this guy is implying so his question i think is well-intentioned but it's loaded and it's it's question begging probably unintentionally because he says the word fraud there so what he's assuming is that um he's assuming a certain view of contracts and property and fraud so he's assuming that if you promise to be a slave and you back out on the on the contract then you're defrauding someone of of something i don't know their obligation, their right, their property, something. But you see how that's question begging because it's like, well, yeah. if 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 you own me and I don't comply with your wishes, then I'm I'm stealing your property from you, which is me. But if your only argument that I'm doing that is because I promised it, and if I don't fulfill the promise, it's fraud, then that's just a complicated way of just restating your assumption. Like it's so I guess so. My, my 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 basic answer would be, it's not fraud. So fraud is, and again, so this requires another rethinking of the entire. So it, it all is based upon the fundamentals and the foundations, which is property rights and law emerges and arises because of the fundamental fact of scarcity and the possibility of conflict. So the whole function of property rights is to assign ownership to things so that we can know who owns it so people can avoid conflict. That's the whole point of all of this, right? Um, and so, um, so you can't just throw the word fraud out and say – so libertarians for decades have been sloppy about this because – We've had low-hanging fruit, and we've been fighting against the status. So it, we could easily say, "Oh, we libertarians, we think that everything's permissible except for, you know, the initiation of force and trespass and fraud and threats." So we keep adding these things on to sort of like, like it, like it's like it's a no-brainer that it's yeah. obviously part of the first thing, but it's not so obviously part of it unless you're careful with what you're saying, right? So. Most people mean the word fraud to just mean being a lying, dishonest asshole, right? Yeah. You, you told some girl you made a lot of money, you took her on a date, you defrauded her, whatever. 
you're you're a fraud. You're a fraud. What does that even mean? It depends on how the date ended. That uh, stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, I'm thinking of my dates in college. Oh, okay. <laughs> but no, like so, like you know, it's like uh, so, like you say, someone is a fraud. That's a vague term. It just means. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say his name because he's very famous and he might sue me. But a certain <laughs> Bitcoin person, I would say, is a fraud. If you know what I'm saying. But what does that mean? It means he's a dishonest person. Okay, but there's nothing. There's nothing. I will say there's nothing wrong with being dishonest, but there's nothing rights violating about being dishonest, right? Per se. So you can't say that someone violates the non-aggression principle or violates rights just because they were a fraud. If by fraud you just mean they were dishonest. So what fraud really means is, in my view. The only coherent core of the fraud idea that you can anchor in non-aggression is what I call implicit theft. And so that mm. just follows from property rights and contracts. Yeah. So, so property rights means I'm the legitimate owner of this thing for these reasons. I'm the first one to use it or I got it by contract from someone else. right? But that by itself implies that I can transfer it to someone consensually or voluntarily right consensually if it's not consensual then it's not a legitimate transfer so if you coerce me you threaten me to do it that's not consensual and likewise if you misrepresent the terms of what you're doing for me in return it's also not consensual it's sort of like the idea of informed consent for surgery or something like that so i think fraud has to be anchored in this idea of informed consent and theft by theft by trick, basically, is what the common law calls it, theft by trick. But if you understand that, theft by trick only refers to things that are – you're stealing an owned resource that we already agree is owned. So you can't use the idea of fraud to justify ownership of a body that's transferable because that's what's, that's what's sought to be justified, right? So if I promise to be your slave, the question is can you use force against me if I don't obey your orders? Right. And to me, the answer is simply no, because if you use force against me, you're committing aggression. Well, so and, what's, and what, that's not a remedy for contracts, right? I mean, well, that's the other thing. So that, that's the other thing. People think of comp. I, I actually think there should be no remedies for contracts because contracts should not be thought of as binding obligations where breach is possible and then you have to remedy. Like, I actually think the entire conceptual framework is wrong and confused well then like, that, that a, gives me to my next question which is it are, is contract law current contract law or how you might even perceive it is that um in alignment with libertarian values and then if yes or no so i do family law that's all i do and so if we we're going to go to private courts as an example how mm -hmm. would we deal with this with contracts and uh, as andy actually had asked me to to put on here uh what would your uh, children parental rights look like i.e family courts in a private legal system now now see that that's actually a very i think a fascinating question so i think that for most private commercial law the rothbardian and kinsella view of contracts uh differs from the way that the modern system works in very few respects very very minor um but it does have greater and greater effects I mean, because we don't have debtors, we don't have debtors. If we had debtors prison, I would say it has a big effect, but we don't have debtors prison anymore. Not exactly, although. You, and even specific performance isn't, isn't really a. Yeah, you don't have specific performance and you don't have debtors prison. So in that respect, basically the system is basically my system. They just don't know it, you know. But 
it could make a difference when it comes to things like family law, which is very interesting. And I did, I've done a little family law, and actually, it's one of my favorite parts of law. I, wow, I love that I hate stuff. It. That's so. Bad. So I actually have oh, an engineering I... degree, and I always wanted to do what you do. And uh, <laughs> I do what I do, and uh, I mean, it makes money. So we'll I like doing name changes and adoptions and wills and all that stuff. I just, <laughs> oh, okay. I liked it. Yeah. Anyway. But anyway, um, I've just so, been the one drug through there. Yeah, I would, I would, Andy, <laughs> you can be my client if I lived in Texas. Sorry. Well, so I think that you would have to recharacterize and recast all this stuff in a libertarian framework if you wanted to figure out what the right result is. Now, I do tend to think that the the default rules in family law, and by family law, I mean um, marital property law, divorce law, separate separation of estates, uh, yeah. uh, alimony. I think that they tend to be roughly justifiable by a private way that I would recast everything, but it would take a lot of work, and I haven't done that. Well, so that that's something uh, Andy and I are, he's, he's been involved in the system. He's very passionate about that. And that's something I do. So I'm, we're trying to, in a sense, you know, figure things out. My problem is I'm deep in the system of every day, the nuts and bolts of. Yeah. Your mic cut out, Tyler. I can't hear you. So it's not just me. Tell me some no. stories about Tyler. <laughs> he's a, he's a uh, <laughs> professional bicyclist too. <laughs> yeah. um, professional what? Still alive. He's a professional bicyclist as well. Ah. But him and I, so I've been on uh, through family law system and custodial court. And it's interesting talking to him about it. Obviously, you know, I would abolish the state monopoly on courts, but what would just trying to think what would private custodial law look like. I think well, the thing, there the are thing, advantages the, to the competition of courts. Yes. But the thing is, you know, are you talking about like a divorce or something like that? Child, child support and all that. Yeah. I mean, no system is going to make that situ that situation nice. Right. I mean, yeah, you can't really blame the system for the problem. The only question is, how does it respond to it? And, of course, if you give the parents more agency in making decisions ahead of time that the system has to respond to, then you, you think that a lot of these things would be – you know, you get married you say, listen, here, here's the regime we're going to ag agree to live by. Yeah, I think – with my experience with it, it tends to negotiate conflicts up rather than down as it is today. So like what would be a, like more preferable outcomes, especially when it comes, it seems like a lot of the, the incentives drive people to further entrench conflict. Yeah. And I, I think, I, well, that, and that's, that's primarily because the government runs it and they're just not that good at it. Yeah. Tyler. You're still, you're still, you're, you're still, still okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to, I got a couple of other quick questions. I'll ask you if you still got a few minutes. Sure. Um, I was going to say, how does estoppel complement argumentation ethics? Well, I think it sort of changes the focus 
so Hoppe talks more about more the abstract requirements of argumentation in general. But I focus on like I, I imagine more like a court a court situation where like people are actually, you know. Hello. You're back. Gotcha. I don't know what happened. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we're talking about Stopple. Right. I assume we're still recording. Yes, we, uh, it's been going on without me. This is how the show is uh, run, so no problem. Are, are you really real? <laughs> well, my wife seems to think uh, I am at times, so yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt by this show. I'll just talk briefly about the Estoppel stuff. Um, I think it sort of helps flesh out some issues that Hans doesn't directly address. Um, like, for, for example, the way I talk about Estoppel, I talk about proportionality of punishment because that's what someone could argue when they're trying to object to being punished, like in a physical, in a real context. Um, so like I, I say that, well, well, you know, if you've committed this kind of crime, you have no ground to stand on to complain about being punished proportionally because you've done that. But if, if, the, if the victim wants to go beyond that, you do have a ground because um, you haven't done what you haven't done what they, they want proposed to do to you. Right. So uh, it sort of helps put meat on the bones. And it like so like I think the estoppel context helps solve like one problem, which a lot of critics of the free market have argued, which is the billionaire problem, which is like. Oh, well, if you just put a, a fixed value on everyone's life, then a Bill Gates could run – he could kill like a 1,000 people and get away with it with impunity because he could just pay $3 million to all the heirs of the people he killed, and he could just get away with it. right? But in my system, it's more Austrian. It's more subjective. There's no, there's no objective value of human life. It simply recognizes that the victim – or the victim's heirs have a right to proportional punishment. So if you're a billionaire and you commit an act of murder, then the victim, the victim's heirs could theoretically kill you in return, right? It'd be a just proportionate punishment. And so they could use that right to threaten you, to bargain you, to, you know, if I'm worth $100,000, I might pay you $90,000 to avoid being killed. But if I'm worth a billion dollars, I might pay $990 million to avoid being killed. So it was sort of solved the billionaire problem. So I think it sort of adds more color and nuance and context to the whole, the whole framework of, of thinking about what rights we have. Hasn't Bernie Sanders been trying to solve the billionaire problem? <laughs> yeah, getting rid, getting rid of billionaires. <laughs> right. Except for the the government, right? The government's right. always going to be a Yeah, there. exactly. Uh, so, uh, well, look, I know you said an hour. We'll let you go. But I, I did have a few questions. Maybe someday you could come back again. One of the big questions I have with an attorney is uh, the Alex Jones. Um, obviously, you went to head toe-to-toe -to -toe with Hornberger on this. Um, I've looked into it some. I am baffled with the, the civil procedure issue that they would do a kind of the kill shot of default uh, on someone. Now I understand, you know, what can happen if you're not following the rules of civil uh, discovery. Right. And I don't know, I hear Barnes out there talking like, you know, Jones did everything possible, but I am a little skeptical only because two jurisdictions seem to be in cahoots to do this. Uh, doesn't mean that I'm in agreement at all with one defamation laws and, or the judgment. Okay. So I'm, I'm not with Hornberger on any of those. I'm just a little bit curious. Do you know, and I've, I haven't been able to find the pleadings. Do you know 
um, anything about the specifics on um, default with that? No, I didn't. I didn't follow the details of it because to you know, I was just interested in the in the sort of broader picture. Um, yeah. Um, I, I will say that lots of people. It, it's sort of like when I talk about intellectual property, people don't really understand the law that they're talking about, and they blend things together. Like they'll say, "Oh, if you're against copyright, I guess you're in favor of plagiarism." It's like, well, plagiarism and copyright are different, and trade secret is different than patents, and patents are different than trademarks, and and so. It is possible that I, I like again. I didn't. I didn't follow the, the details. But if Alex Jones actually uh, incited a mob to go harass some families and they physically did that, I could see a case being made under libertarian law for him being liable, like incitement. So I've actually written about this in my causation piece with Pat Tinsley. Um, so speech can sometimes lead to liability if you incite a mob. I think you're. I think you're guilty, and the reason – the way that you can see that is uh, imagine um, – imagine you're a Jewish maid cleaning up Hitler's headquarters during World War II, okay. and your family's in the concentration camp, and one night you have the you're, – you're, you're dusting around his desk, and you have the right to – you've got the ability to pick up a, a letter opener and stab him in the neck and kill him, right, right. and save your family, right? Would you be justified? Now, I, I know some of these pacifist retard libertarians say no, but maybe she'd be forgiven. It's like, no, <laughs> she's actually taking out a threat to her family. And the reason he's a threat is because he has the authority to make speech and sounds that would lead to her family being killed, right? Yeah. Right. So the context matters a lot. So sometimes the ability to do things that harm people. But my understanding is the Alex Jones case had nothing to do with that. Everyone says that. It's, oh, Alex Jones made all these people harassed. It's like, well, I don't think – my understanding is the causes of action was primarily uh, defamation, which, again, is unjust. And what was the other one? It was um, – Well, in, in Connecticut, they used like a consumer protection uh, type of law or you know, yeah, so I, I don't know. Which is similar. So it's probably yeah. reputation rights-based or something yeah. like that. Like you, you've harmed some of your reputation, which – Actually, from what I know about defamation law, I think it's all bullshit because I don't think that these parents' reputation was no. harmed. They might have been harassed, but again, that's a different cause of action, which I don't think was the basis of this suit. Um, do you think anyone in the country thinks that these parents were really false flags or whatever the hell he claimed? I don't think anyone believes that. So their reputation has literally not been harmed. Their feelings yeah. have been hurt. That's true, but that's not what defamation law is based upon. So – I think I think it's crazy. I, I have a feeling he might win on appeal, but I don't know. I mean, it's it's devastating. All, all I can imagine is when the the uh, the plaintiffs filed to have this done by default because he wasn't following you know the guidelines for civil procedure. His response should you know timestamp everything out of what they've produced and whatnot, and that would be helpful. I can't find that, but I'm sure it's he, he, anyway. he might have he might have made a mistake in not complying with the system uh, because he's again. Just like your common law court nut friends, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're sovereign. He's a <laughs> sovereign, sovereign well, citizen. Right. Uh, well, anyway, we'll, we'll let that go. There's so much we can more talk. Andy, did you have any? Oh, before we go, though, I did want to make sure I got this question. And what, what's the best kind of hop a book or maybe article for someone who hasn't really read him and wants to get in, in, into uh, Hoppe? Well, 
Well, if it's a book, I would read A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. Okay. But if it's something shorter, um, I would start with his article in Libertarian Papers. It's on his website, uh, HansHoppe.com. Um, uh, I think it's called A Rationale for Total Privatization, something like that. But it's in Libertarian Papers about eight years ago. That's a good kind of precise overview of his approach to political theory. All right. Andy, what, what do you have for uh, Mr. Consola before we to head out? Now you're muted. Oh, sorry. Damn, I coughed a minute ago. I got a few quick a ones. <laughs> I got a few quick ones. Uh, have yeah. you written anything about, um, and, and more of long form, of your skepticism of Hoppe's covenant communities, and where can that be found? Uh, no, I've never written much about it. Um, I, I guess my skepticism would be in the idea that it would be what people think of it as. Like, it wouldn't be a 100% unanimous uh, homeowners association uh, where everyone that's within a certain geographic territory um, would be bound. I think there'd be enough of it where it could have tendencies. And I also personally am a little bit skeptical. I think I'm a little bit more of a cosmopolitan and a modernist than Hans is. Um, I think it's fine to live among a, a diverse group of people. And I think that's, that would probably tend to be the model of any future society that's successful. Um, if we can escape this wokeism bullshit. Right. Um, yeah. So, so like, it's like, I want us to get rid of religion, but not by adopting the other religion. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of my view. Um, is it possible? I don't know. I, I don't see why it's not possible. So in my utopian society, we would have not really covenant communities. You would just have different areas and um, they would tend to be secular, cosmopolitan, uh, diverse, multicultural. But it would, of course, be heterosexual based and with people having kids. And that would be the predominant mode of society because that's the way the human race procreates itself. I mean – yeah, you can have gay people and whatever running around. That's okay. Yeah, uh, people, even more homogenous cultural enclaves tend to venture out and trade with people outside of their enclaves. Yeah, and even live among each other. I mean, you go to Israel now, there's Palestinians there. You go to some Arab countries, there's a few Jewish pockets. And, you know, there's there's you know there's white groups in other countries and black groups in these countries and Hispanic here and there and Chinatown. I mean, I... I don't see anything wrong with that and you can't predict it and you shouldn't want to steer it. But um, I, I tend to think the phenomena would be more people that don't follow the rules and that are social misfits and outcasts and that are basically intolerant assholes. They're going to tend to find life increasingly unpleasant and they're not going to be able to succeed. So they'll just be winnowed out by the market process. So that's how I view it. And I think that's sort of the end result of this Hoppy and Covenant community idea. But I don't know. I don't really think you'll have conservative Covenant community here with a bunch of Mormons and you know all white land here and Hispanic land here. I, I really don't think that's the future of humanity. And I don't. I don't know if Hans thinks that either. No, not not in a big expanse uh, for the most part. I mean, you do. You, you mentioned the the Mormons. There was. I don't know if you've seen this show on Netflix. Keep sweet. Pray and it's something about it's it's about the fundamentalist Mormons, um, Latter Day Saints. 
pretty fascinating. But uh, Andy, besides uh, that, did two, you have any two, two last real quick Jesus. ones. Is, is libertarianism a legal, ethical, or moral theory or a blend? It's meta-ethical in that it's a series of norms about what laws we should have. So it's, it's sort of meta-ethical slash legal. Um, it's, it's not directly moral except insofar as a moral philosopher wants to argue that, um, that there's a default presumption that rights violations are immoral, but that's beyond my pay grade. So I think it's more like it's a set of norms telling us what laws we should have. My last question is way off topic. I just wanted to ask this one for fun is who is your favorite rapper? I don't Eminem. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Stephen, thanks. Uh, you know, you're you and Scott Horton, the two big intellectuals that I didn't get a chance to meet at Reno. Uh, next time I'm around, some of these I'll, I'll definitely try to hook up. So, we appreciate you coming on. Anything you want to plug? Uh, upcoming events or anything um, that's uh, before we head out? I got nothing. Just follow me on the normal channels. All right, and at Garbage Main, Andy. Uh, go watch Kinsella's recent talk at the PFS. It's really good. And uh, check out hoppian.org. There you go. So uh, people, if you check back into this, you're going to get find some nuggets. One, I think Stefan called Bob Murphy a retard. No, <laughs> no, no. I don't think so. <laughs> oh, he's a he's a pacifist. Uh, and then there's some big uh, big wig uh, Bitcoiner he doesn't like. I I got it into one with one, too. I called him a liar. And he came after it may me. Maybe the I'm same one. It probably I love Bob. I love Bob. He knows that. <laughs> uh, off air, tell me who your Bitcoin guy is. I'll tell you mine, and then we'll go. Thank you very much. I appreciate your Thank intellect you. and, and to coming on here with us. Uh, hang on just a second. We'll talk to you backstage. It's going to be an extra long, unnecessary outro. Thank you, everybody, for coming on and watching. Uh, check us out everywhere we are, and like us, and, and just subscribe. Thanks. Okay, I'm leaving now, my guys. But she's back. And now. Chick-fil-A is completely overrated. It's not that good. I prefer Zaxby's. I prefer Popeye's. Takes a tough man to make a tender forecast, Nick. And I guess that's me. <laughs> Keep fucking that chicken. For, should I vote for Dick Cheney on the Libertarian Party? Do yes. I have an obligation to vote for Dick Cheney? I would say so. Yes. Well, did it work for those people? <laughs> no, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but... <laughs> but it might work for us. That one dude was like, not a podcast, I can't find it anywhere, and they don't have video. Oh, yeah, Peter Janky, yeah. He's... Yeah, I blocked him. I'll do it. If he unblocks me, I'll... I'll... He'll buy your shirt if you unblock him, Bert. He's a wigger. Yeah, nothing cooler than so a 49-year-old wigger. Like... Yeah, I just started I live streaming. Cut me some slack. I'm fucking... I'm pretty high-tech for a boomer. Uh, but anyways... I'm a boomer. I...